Good morning. I was told that I would magically come on when I came up here. Well, I'm thankful to be here in Newland. I am the associate pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church, which uh, I live just 40 minutes down the road. So other than probably McDowell County, this is the closest church uh, to our church. So I definitely am thankful that I had the opportunity to come up here and, and meet you folks. Uh, I was uh, told that I brought the gloom and the rain this morning, so I apologize for that. Uh, I have a melancholy kind of personality, so I actually kind of like rain. Some of you might think that's strange, but uh, I apologize for this big water bottle. Sometimes my throat messes up and I have to have something to drink. I thought this pulpit was down far enough I might be able to hide it, but I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, enough chit-chat. If you will, please turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first four verses. Uh, for those of you who do not know, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we don't know exactly when James came to the faith, but we do know that he was called to be an apostle. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ after the resurrection uh, Paul tells us that, that, James, that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection along with 500, uh, 500 other people. Uh, James is a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. He, uh, if you read Acts chapter 15, he's, he's kind of like the, almost like the moderator, if you think of it like a presbytery or a general assembly. He's like the moderator of what's going on in Acts chapter 15 as they're dealing with the issue of, of circumcision and the uh, heresy of the Judaizers. So just a few little credentials about James before we look into his book. If you will, uh, take your Bibles now. Let's just read the first four verses of the book of James. Hear the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word. Control. I believe control is something that none of us would deny that we all crave in our lives. We all want to have some type of control. My, uh, my son Isaac, who is now 22 years old, my oldest son, he used to watch a show called Blue's Clues. Any of you remember way back the show Blue's Clues? Okay. In this show, there was a song that they always sang. I think it was usually towards the end of the show where they said, they had the little phrase where they said, you can do anything that you want to do, right? Remember Steve saying that? Now, I don't want to be overly critical of Blue's Clues because I understand the premise behind what they were trying to say in that little jingle. Uh, it is, in a sense, part of the American dream. If you apply yourself, if you work hard, if you're diligent, you can achieve great things in a country where we, where we have created an environment 
uh, which gives opportunity and rewards hard work. And of course, it's not unbiblical to think that using your gifts for good uh, can create rewards for you in this world. And you can do the kind of things that you want to do. But the problem comes when you remove God from that equation. When you remove God from the equation, doing anything that you want to do can give you the false idea that you belong to yourself and that you are your own master and you can do anything that you want to do. And the problem with thinking that you can do anything that you want to do is there usually is a situation in this cursed world that we live in that you will come across a circumstance that will keep you from doing anything that you want to do. For instance, what if you wanted to be an athlete and had all the gifts to be a great athlete, but you dove in into a, a river one day and broke your neck and all those dreams were shattered? That's the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you may know and heard of her. Well, James wants us to understand that those things that the world might interpret as a series of unfortunate events are acts of a sovereign, loving, heavenly Father. Every one of them. Much of the book of James, in my opinion, is unpacking the concept. It's a concept that Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. He says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. In the introduction to this book, in James, James immediately exposes his view of human control, of his control of his own life, when he expresses the fact that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first thing he says. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word servant uh, is the word doulos in Greek. You don't have to know Greek, just bringing it up casually. Uh, literally, that word means slave. So usually when you see the word servant, our modern translations like to soften that a little bit, and I can understand why. But just know that that word servant usually means slave. You are a slave. And James sees himself as a slave. His life has been bought with a price. His life belongs to God and to Christ. And he's going to teach us that that's true for every one of us that place our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James wants to teach his first century audience. This is a group of people who are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. This same truth that they are owned by their God. They belong to their God. And he's going to start by addressing the difficult topic of trials. And that's what we're going to talk about from the book of James. Uh, if you look at your bulletin, I believe that the outline is in there. Uh, simple outline, two points, kind of three points. Uh, I made the conclusion my third point. But the first point is just basically that trials will happen. Trials are going to happen. Second point is that trials will produce. And then the conclusion is uh, our response to the trials. So in verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We must first notice what James does not say here. James does not say, if you meet a trial. He says, when you meet a trial. It's going to happen. The fact that trials will happen to every Christian 
This is not an indictment on your faith. This isn't a criticism of your Christian walk. It is, as James will explain, the fact that the trials do happen, it is actually an opportunity for your faith, for your faith to grow, for it to be strengthened. Now, there are some who teach that, that if you suffer, it's because of your lack of faith. It's always because of your lack of faith, or it's always because of some secret sin that you're hiding that you won't repent of. This is actually, if you're familiar with the book of Job, this is the fallacy that Job's friends end up committing. Now, at first, they show up and they do the right thing. They're silent. And they just sit with him. And they're just with him in his pain. But eventually, they start theologizing and, uh, and they start explaining to Job that there's something that you've done God is punishing you for. And by the time you get to the end of Job, you see God basically telling all those men that they need to be silent. Now, he also tells Job the same thing, but, but he doesn't tell those men that they were right, that Job had done some secret sin, and that's why he is uh, being punished. Now, that's not to say that trials are always separated from sin. We're going to see even later on, as you read through the book of James, you'll see that James does allude to the fact that, uh, that trials can come from sins. And he even encourages you to seek repentance, even go to the elders and ask for prayer, uh, have them lay hands on you and anoint you. But for right now, at the beginning of the book, he just wants you to simply understand that all Christians suffer. We all face trials. So if you are suffering, if you are undergoing a trial, it's fine to search your heart. It's fine to ask the Lord, have I committed a sin? Is there a a sin that I'm not even aware of? That's fine. Look for those things. Repent of those things. But don't think that just because you're going through an, an ongoing trial, something that doesn't seem to be going away, almost like a thorn in the flesh that Paul dealt with, don't think that God expects you to go through some type of emotional penance in order for him to remove his angry hand. James wants you to understand that God is there with you in your trial. He is sovereign over your trial, but he's not there for the purpose of punishment. He's there for the purpose of producing. God wants to produce something in you. Now, we're going to talk about producing in just a little bit, but first I want to talk about this phrase, trials of various kinds. Now, I think the vagueness of this phrase is very purposeful on the part of James. James doesn't want you to think that there is a specific category of trial that comes from the hand of God and one type of trial that's just coincidence. You know, the laws of nature just naturally make things happen. Murphy's Law, you ever heard of Murphy's Law? If something bad's going to happen, it it will happen. Uh, James doesn't want you to have those categories in your mind as a believer. He wants you to see God moving in all of your circumstances. And Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, you cannot separate your Savior from your trials. And this means all of your trials, from the everyday trials to the life-shattering and life-stopping trials. All of your trials are connected to your Savior. A trial could be Acquiring a life-threatening disease. I saw someone in the bulletin is going through chemotherapy. 
Uh, I heard somebody mention who's having to take a shot once a month to clear up what nodules in the throat. Uh, those are major trials. Those are, those are life-changing trials. A trial could be a, the daily struggle of controlling your anger. Uh, maybe the traffic's not as bad up here in Newland, but in Morganton, I'm always struggling with my anger. Uh, I guess as I get older, traffic just becomes more frustrating for me. I don't know. Become an honorary in my old age. Uh, or a trial could be the daily grind of just dealing with a strong-willed toddler. You ever had to deal with a strong-willed toddler? Hear an amen on that side, yeah. <laughs> so those are, those are various trials. All of them are trials that come from the hand of God. And our master has purpose in all trials, both great and small. Now, it is true when we think of the ones who received this book, so if you think about the original intent to the original audience, we always like to think about that. These people were facing terrible persecution from the Roman Empire. Uh, eventually, they're going to be thrown to lions. Uh, some of them were, were dipped in tar and, and made uh, lamps for Nero's garden parties. Uh, they faced terrible trials. Now, these individuals that James was writing to immediately probably didn't face that much persecution, but their, their children uh, and their posterity would. However, as you work through the, through the letter of James, James seems more concerned not with the great persecution type of trials, but he's more concerned about how they affect the inside and how the trials that you are facing in your heart as these external things work in on you. James talks about anger. He talks about greed. He talks about partiality. He talks about something that seems simple, but is almost impossible. Controlling your tongue. That's a hard thing to do. He talks about being judgmental. Do you see a poor person come into your church, and a rich person come in, and you give great favor to the rich person, and you tell the poor person, sit back there in the corner, where nobody can see you. Uh, those are internal trials that we all face in our heart. And James wants us to see the various trials from outside always produce the internal trial. And he wants us to examine our hearts while we are under the pressure of trials. And he wants us to fight against all these internal reactions to external trials. And this stuff is messy. It's difficult, it's hard, and it's discouraging to think about this constant battle that you are trying to control your heart as all these things are coming at you. And by the way, James also says he wants you to count it joy. It's difficult, it's messy, oh, and count it all joy. So how can we count it all joy? And why are we to count it all joy? Well, that brings us to our second point. Trials will produce. Why are we to count trials joy? James says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials justify us. Now, when I say they justify us, I don't mean that they justify us in the sense that we're made right with God. I mean they prove the evidence of your faith. Uh, 
Trials put your faith to the test. Now, when you think of the word test, uh, some of you in here might love school. Are there anybody in here who loves school? All right, good. And loves taking tests? All right. That's good. Uh, well, when you think of this kind of test, don't think of it like the test kind of test that you enjoy, like taking a geometry test. I wouldn't enjoy geometry tests, but some of you might. It's it's more of a metallurgy term, and and he's when he says test, he's talking about the way that you test metals, the way that you create metals. Uh, metal comes from ore in the earth. There's probably lots of good ore in these mountains around here. Ore uh, contains impurities. There's impurities in the ore that have to be put under intense heat. Intense pressure. And that way the impurities boil to the top and the thing that's strong and the thing that's beautiful, which is the metal, is what's remaining. And that's what James means when he says that your faith is being put to the test. You're being tested. Uh, And James' thinking actually comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, especially in wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs, the book of Job, some of the Psalms, there's a lot of this metallurgy language. Uh, Job says when he is in the midst of his great trial, he says, when God has tried me, and that word means when he's tested me, I shall come out as gold. I will come out looking like gold. Uh, in Zechariah, God speaks of the remnant, and he says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Now, James wants us to count it all joy, not because you enjoy being put in that heat and enjoy being put in that pressure, but because you have joy in the product. The product is where you find your joy. Through the fires, God will produce steadfastness, and we need that steadfastness. The uh, Greek word for steadfastness, again, is the word hupomone. Uh, the word can be translated perseverance or endurance. I like the concept, this is the way it can be translated too, is fortitude. There's a fortitude to it, a capacity uh, to be resolute in a certain course. And for us, it's the course of following Jesus. Hupomone increases the strength of our faith. And it can manifest itself in at least two ways. It hardens us in our direction. In Luke 9.51, Jesus says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you have an older translation, I think the King James says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was hardened. He was resolved that he was going to Jerusalem. And he wasn't going to Jerusalem because he He loved suffering. That's not why he went. The book of Hebrews uh, explains to us why Jesus went to the cross. It says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The object of Jesus' joy was not the cross. The object of Jesus' joy was you and the kingdom that he was creating by going to the trial of the cross. 
The steadfastness produced by trials creates in our hearts the same type of resolve. So the pressure that is created through these trials can give us the same type of fortitude. It is a resoluteness that sets our affections on the kingdom that's beyond all these trials that we are facing every day. This this resoluteness reveals to our blind eyes that the ideal kingdom we all in our hearts desire, an ideal kingdom, trials show us that the ideal kingdom never takes place here in this life. And it never takes place without the holiness that, that trials produce in us by the hand of God. Trials are like a realignment. They realign our hearts by making this world less desirable. And they make us more dependent. Those of you who have been through a hard trial, you know that you become more dependent upon the king of the kingdom than you've ever been. Steadfastness also opens up our eyes to God's purposes. So rather than seeing every dead car battery, don't we love to get up in the morning and find a dead car battery? Or find out, go to the dentist and find out that we've got a cavity. Uh, we stop seeing those things as happenstance. They're not happenstance. They're not bad luck. These things come from the hand of our loving Father who is giving the opportunity to remove certain impurities that must be purified from our hearts. Trials can be like chemotherapy. They are painful because in the hands of our loving physician, they kill things. They kill things that we are clinging to. They kill things that are deep down inside of us and sometimes hard to get to. They kill things like selfish ambition. They kill anger. They kill our desire for control. They kill our need to crown ourselves as the Lord of our own kingdom. This is why trials are joy. Because your loving Savior uses them to produce steadfastness in you. A steadfastness that holds back the wave of sin that's inside of your heart that would break open like a dam if God was not purifying your heart. So far in verses 2 through 3, James has primarily shown God's perspective on trials. So he's kind of talked about trials objectively. Here's what trials are like. They come from the hand of God. They're going to happen. They're going to produce. But now in verse 4, James is going to turn to you. And he's going to tell you something that he wants you to do. And he wants you to consider. So in conclusion, let us look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You have a role to play here. Let the process of God's purifying trials have its full effect upon you. The first way to do this is to place what James has said thus far into your worldview. So just in your mind, accept the fact that trials will come and accept the truth that they're going to produce something in you. 
Now, emotionally, you might not have embraced that completely, but in your mind, in your worldview, it's good to have that settled, that the trials come from the hand of God. Examine your heart during your trials and ask God to show you impurities that need to be sanctified. Grow in your resolve that trials are producing holiness and that God is being faithful to his promises and working in accordance with his good character. There's always a danger in trials. There's always a temptation in our hearts to judge and question the good character of God. So you have to prepare yourself beforehand to know and understand that trials are coming from a good God. Never separate your Savior from your suffering. God does not callously place you into the fire. He does not do it with apathy. He does not do it as a, as a capricious God who has no relationship with you and just sees you as an object. Jesus has been in the fire. Remember the story of the men who were thrown into the furnace and there was a fourth person in there? Jesus was in the fire with them. Jesus intimately understands your trials and he walks with you through them. In Hebrews it says you have a great high priest Not a great high priest who doesn't know what it's like to be a man, who's always been in heaven and separate from creation. But you have a great high priest who who sympathizes with all of your weaknesses. And because Jesus is God, and because he is united to you individually, he understands that trial as though he were you going through it. That's how intimately he can empathize with your trials. So you are not going through your trials alone, and you are not going through your trials with a God who does not care and flippantly throws you into the fire. Resolve yourself. I think this is important. Resolve yourself to the truth that sanctification, the process by which God makes you holy, is a long game. Have you ever heard stories of people who come to Christ, they've been an alcoholic for 10 years, and then they come to Christ and never touch the bottle again? God can do that. But he doesn't always do that. I mean, just because the person stepped away from the alcohol doesn't mean that there aren't other sins that God is constantly rooting out of them. Sometimes some sins can be purified pretty immediately, but sanctification is a long game. First, trials are always going to be part of this life. They're just going to be. Because in this life, you will never be completely purified. But the steadfastness that God produces in you as you go through a trial, as you were given steadfastness, it increases your ability to endure future trials. So past grace actually gives you strength for future grace. Second, Don't be overwhelmed by the process of seeing your sins float to the surface. Don't think that your Savior isn't aware of those sins. 
He died for those sins. He knows they're there. He's trying to root them out so that you can see them and repent of them. He's not shocked or surprised when they come out. But he does want you to be purified. And don't lose hope because you see trials exposing the same sin over and over in you. Holiness is a long game, but thankfully it is a long game that your God has promised that he will not give up on. The one who began the good work in you, you probably all know this this verse, will be faithful to complete that good work in you. When you feel yourself being drugged down through the thorny pain of trials, you should look in two directions. First, you need to look back. As you see your imperfections rise to the surface, look back to the cross. Jesus' death has already purified you from your sin. There's a sense, there's a doctrine that we call definitive sanctification. It means there's a sense in which you were already sanctified, you were already holy, you were already pure. Now the progressive sanctification is what we struggle with. In our daily lives we're always seeing our sin and having Grief over our sin. That's the process of sanctification. But you are already pure and holy in Jesus Christ. That's how you're able to enter into the sanctuary, into the presence of God's people, and worship in his presence. You can draw near to him because you are already purified. So just remember, there's a sense in which God is already completely pleased with you because he is completely pleased with Jesus Christ. So you must look back and take hope in the purifying trial that Jesus perfectly endured when he shed his blood for you. But you also need to look forward. James is alluding to your full sanctification, which we might call, we should call glorification. Your glorification when he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James isn't talking about now. He's talking about when you enter the kingdom, you will be perfect, you will be complete, you'll be lacking nothing in the presence of your God. So look forward to that time when you will be perfect and complete. And I would add one more direction. This is another direction. Look to one another. Do not suffer in isolation. The Lord has given you a body. Christ dwells in people. Christ ministers to you through people with flesh on. We have been created to need other people. And it's always been my opinion that when I have had close brothers and sisters who go through trials, in my own heart, that is exposed to me how much I love them. Because I want to care for them. I want to be with them. I want to walk with them through the trial. So trials can actually produce greater love for the brethren. And that's a great byproduct of trials. So don't suffer in isolation. You have a great resource, the body of Christ. And clothe yourself in kindness, compassion, and sympathy towards people that you approach every day. Because you never know what kind of trial they might be going through. Don't make the mistake of Job's friends and become part of their trial. You want to help people in their trials, not become 
uh, added burden to their trial. Finally, as the Lord slowly and delicately uses trials to pry our fingers open from our grip on this world, the steadfastness that's being produced in you will cry out into your heart that you're not losing something good when you lose this world, but you're making room for a new creation, an ultimate beginning, which is filled with perfect holiness, love, and joys that you can count for eternity. Amen. You want me to introduce the song?